Get your day started right. This is VOC Breakfast with Gulam Fakir and Sabiro Sheikh Only on the Voice of the King. It's just gone 6.47 right here on VOC Breakfast. If you've just joined us, welcome into it. Good to have you in our company this morning. Yo, I won't joke. Some of our Facebook followers really give you a good laugh early in the morning. But nevertheless, we move along to our first feature this morning. And of course, you know, in light of everything um, that's happened last week, what with students protesting um, outside tertiary institutions and, you know, just the way in which everything has panned out. I mean, mm. we saw, you know, a young gentleman um, who was killed, you know, in those clashes as well. And, you know, it's brought into question once again police brutality and the way in which police um, deal with protesters and protesting. You know, are they adequately trained? Do they know how to handle protests? You know, um, in terms of, you know, their weapons, can police the police order be trusted with their weapons? All of these questions have come into play. So, of course, this morning we thought we'd get some answers and speak to researcher at the Socio-Economic Rights Institute, and that is Tato uh, Masiangoko. Good morning, and thank you so much for joining us, Tato. Hi, um, good morning to your listeners and thank you for having me. It's only a pleasure. So, like we're saying, in light of everything, you know, that has played out over the last week or so, and once again, we see police uh, brutality being called into question. Um, you know, perhaps let's start off by understanding, in general, there's almost this notion that the police and policing cannot be trusted there with their we- weapons, especially when it comes to protests of this nature, when it comes to um, a policing in the public spectrum, so to speak. Perhaps, you know, enlightening us on that. Yeah, so it is, it's an important question because um, the police are armed with um, a, a wide array of weapons. Um, they're supposed to be armed largely to deal with protests with less lethal weapons. Um, and I say that in inverted commas because um, what we saw last week was, of course, how the misuse of a weapon termed to be a less lethal weapon can in fact be lethal and that is not the first time we've seen death um, caused by um, rubber bullets. We saw that um, with Andres Tatane some time back. So so what we are sitting with is, is a police force that is um, poorly trained in terms of dealing with protests. When they see protesters um, they, they tend to view protesters as as um, criminals, they seem to view protest as an inconvenience to the rest of society, um, and they fail to recognize that protest is a constitutional right um, that needs to be protected and facilitated by them, in fact. Mm. Um, but then, if we're speaking about their weapons, you know, they have weapons that, of course, can cause harm, but they are supposed to be used properly. And so things like throwing a sun grenade overhead um, over over a, a crowd of protesters mm. is wrong. Sun grenades are actually traditionally used to train soldiers, and they're rolled on the ground. So why are our SAPS officers throwing that overhead? Why are SAPS officers firing rubber bullets at distance, at close range, which is, is, is unlawful? Mm. Mm. Um, and even the rubber bullet itself, um, we, we need to have a conversation about whether or not that weapon actually needs to be um, pulled off the streets because a lot of countries are moving away from that because of the dangerous harm um, that that weapon can cause. Mm. Now, Tato, you know, we're constantly asking, you know, is SAPS adequately trained to deal with protests, to deal with, you know, members of the public 
within the sort of environment, you know, when it does come up. And of course, we saw last week, you know, um, those protests, and then of course, you know, the altercation with SAPS um, leading to a fatality as well. And then we see the police minister easily coming through and condemning um, such actions. You know, are we truly addressing the problem in, in terms of SAPS and, and that training that's required? Well, the facts are that as, as um, the public, we are still sitting in the dark. And we're sitting in the dark for about nine years now because Marikana happened mm-hmm. um, and a commission of inquiry set. Um, and then there was an expert panel which was set up and sat and looked at the issue of crowd management from the perspective of SAPS. Um, SAPS was represented on that expert panel. We had South African experts. We had international experts. They spent two years thinking about that issue, and they produced a report um, that was handed in to the Minister of Police, who's yet to make that report public. We understand that he, he says it will be released soon, but we're speaking about, you know, it's over two years now. Um, and so that report, we believe, contains a lot of useful information in terms of what the police should be doing, what weapons they should have, how leadership impacts on the police's ability to um, carry out their duty effectively. Issues like command and control. Mm. So it's, it's, it's interesting in terms of, you know, where is the political will to inform members of the public and to get on with the job that you're supposed to, which is improve policing in this country. So there is a report that we're waiting for, mm-hmm. and that will shed a lot of light in terms of what is required in, um, for training. Mm. And if we were to look at the incident, for example, in Vit, uh, that, that happened at Vitz, you know, at the, the, the protest, who would have made that call then, you know, for, for SAPS to make an appearance or to do the crowd control, um, you know, before things just, you know, basically before all hell broke loose? Right. So in previous protests, um, universities were the ones that were calling police um, onto campus. And we have um, a report that looks specifically at the 2015-2016 protests where it did actually call SAPS to be on campus. Um, and a lot of abuses were carried out as a result of that. Um, and so that's a separate issue. However, what we understand is that the university has gone on record to say that they did not call police this time and that it was only um, campus security that were dealing with um, access issues on the campus. So the police may have responded to, I guess, a complaint by a member of the public saying, you know, Students are blocking the streets, and that that can be expected. However, what cannot be is that police arrive at a peaceful protest which is spontaneous um, and immediately resort to dispersing protesters in the violent manner that they did. Again, protest is a right that is constitutionally protected, and when police arrive at a spontaneous protest, which we have laws that account for this kind of thing, it's not completely out of the blue. Mm. Protests are not always planned. But when it happens spontaneously, the police have a duty to arrive on, on the scene, negotiate with leaders that they can identify, communicate, and de-escalate tensions. Not fire indiscriminately rubber bullets, um, throwing tear gas and sun grenades at students, dispersing them in a public setting, and engaging in a way that you're not even protecting protesters or non-protesters. And in this case, we have a tragic death of someone who was not even in the protest mm, because yeah. the police are not careful.
Tato, I just I, I just want to come in and this brings into my next point that I want to discuss morning, Tato. I mean, we saw over the weekend, and I'm not sure if you saw this video that was circulating, um, you know, that happened in, a, in an area in Cape Town in Delft where um, basically police, and I know we're just shifting focus quickly, but it boils down to the same thing that, you know, we were talking about mm-hmm. SAPs and their, and their behavior, you know. Um, the, so, the, so the community, for example, they caught two guys who was allegedly breaking into homes um, in the Delft area. The community then managed to, to, to get hold of the guys and they gave them a, a good hiding, you know, um, be, you know, because of them breaking into the community homes and so forth. However, things became a little bit more interesting when uh, these naked bodies were laying on the floor, these guys, and they were basically beating them with everything you can find. Um, it is alleged the community? That, uh, uh, yes. Um, it, is then, it is then alleged that uh, one of them had died because of the injuries. Uh, we're still waiting on an official report about that. But what was more interesting is, is that the police, um, a clearly marked police vehicle was there standing right in front of this commotion got out of the vehicle stood for about another maybe two minutes and watching the community doing this getting back into the vehicle and they're driving off and now we, we it brings the accountability of saps into question you know who, somebody needs to take responsibility for the overall behavior of saps mm. No, absolutely. And I mean, the the example that you're raising is not an uncommon one. We know that in a lot of communities, um, they, they, they resort to um, mob justice. And yeah. part of that stems from the fact that there's a lack of um, trust in, in the police, right? If you believe that the police would respond effectively, um, timelessly, and do their work effectively, you'd call them first and you wouldn't have to resort to... To, to doing what you believe their duties are supposed to be. Um, and so, you know, it is, it is sad um, uh, that communities have had to take matters into their own hands in that way. Um, but what is, of course, quite disturbing is, is the seeming um, or alleged complicity of SAPs um, in that situation because they're supposed to take control of that situation. And yet there seems to be like a tacit endorsement of, of mob justice, which, which cannot... Um, cannot exist officially. So, yeah, that is that is a disturbing um, example that you've raised. But in terms of accountability, SAPS is responsible for their own conduct. And when SAPS fails, you know, there's ICID, which is the Independent Police Investigative Directorate, which mm-hmm. should um, look into, um, you know, whatever SAPS is accused of doing. And they, they investigate SAPS. Um, I think there's like eight charges that they can, or complaints that they can investigate SAPS on. Um, things like rape, you know, unofficial discharging of a fire weapon, um, torture, murder, um, corruption, and that kind of thing. So they don't investigate everything. And that is why focus needs to really be on steps. Steps in internal disciplinary processes need to be robust. They right. need to be transparent. And they need to be taking um, the lead in terms of accounting for when their members step out mm. of line. Because mm. it, of course, reflects on the entire body. And they often like to say bad apples. But unfortunately, you know, a bad apple um, in the police force is, I guess, tantamount to a bad apple in, in like a, a crew of, of um, pilots. Yes. We wouldn't accept the case that we have bad apples who fly planes because the risk is just so high. Mm. And the same attitude needs to be applied to the police. We cannot have bad apples that violate rights 
routinely behave in a criminal fashion and get away with it. Right. Um, so accountability needs to be strengthened across the board. No, absolutely. And this is definitely a discussion you and I should pick up again. But we're going to have to leave it at that for now. Tato Masiangwaku, thank you very much for your time this morning on Breakfast 91.3 FM. All of the very best to you and your team. Tato, of course, is a researcher at the Socioeconomic Rights Institute talking to us about um, uh, you know, how, uh, whether or not SAPS is uh, capable of, of dealing with the recent flaps that's happening at the moment. Look,